And welcome to another edition of The Stunt Show. This is Mark Zomick, one of the rotating hosts of this show. I share this microphone with, um, let's see if I remember now, Daniel, Go- oh, not Daniel Gordon anymore, Sammy Schechter, which nobody knows yet because he hasn't done a show, Mayor Fertig, um, J- um, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, um, Rabbi Eliyahu Fink, who nobody knows yet, and of course, the great Leo Razamik. So um, I know we've been uh, promoing this show on Facebook and Twitter and on Jamie the Aim this morning, but this is a very exciting show, very appropriate show for an era of Yom Kippur. We sit here on Thursday before the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. I am joined this um, this afternoon, wow, by um, a friend of mine for many years. We discuss Jewish music a lot, although that's not at all how we know each other. Harold Geller, welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you, Mark. Great um, to be here. I am glad to have you. I'm glad we're able to plan this show. So, um, so here's the premise for our listeners who weren't tuned into Jamie the Am this morning. Um, this show evolved from sort of from two different places. Uh, the first place was this is something I've definitely said on the air a lot for many years. There is a continuum, in, continuum if that's the right word, in the music that we associate with Tfila. I think, and uh, this is one of the questions Harold I asked you yesterday. If you walk into any shul tonight or any service tonight, tomorrow night, sorry, for Yom Kippur, and uh, whoever's leading the service starts Kol Nidre, pretty much you're going to hear Neil Diamond singing Kol Nidre. You know, very, very close to what the traditional Kol Nidre Nisra is going to be. No ifs, ands, or buts. And I think that on the other end of the continuum, no matter what, <clears throat> excuse me, service you're going to walk into at any point in the in the high holidays. Anywhere in the world, there are certain parts of the davening, um, certainly the piyutim and shakwas and mosif, that that, meant, that most people will use more contemporary nugunim for. And then in between, there's everything else. And I think we all draw the line in different places. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me it was to be able to understand and articulate the fact that we really are just drawing the lines in different places. Because ultimately, and this is the second part of it, the goal is... For all of us, especially on this coming Shabbos, on Yom Kippur, is to connect in some way with the tefillah. Um, and I think no matter what we want to think about, whether we're comfortable with tefillah or uh, we're comfortable with a certain, certain type of tefillah or not, ultimately our goal is to connect with tefillah on Yom Kippur. And absolutely, that that's the point that, that I want to get at, is that tefillah might be the contemporary prayers that we see in, in all of our same machzars, but the reality is there also are... Kavanot, there are other modern piyutim that that are shared in in different places, and the fact is, absolutely, as you say, it's connection. It's about connection. It's about the themes of of Yom Kippur. It's about the themes of the high holidays. And as you know, in my world, you know, in my world of contemporary Jewish music, that those themes are common. They may be said in a different way, and they right. may, may be said, you know, by different types of people. And they may not be chazanim, they may be song leaders, they may be ballet tefillah. Well, most Orthodox schools don't have chazanim either. Right. So, so you know, and, and so, and we'll get into this conversation right. throughout this, the question of nusach versus melody. And, right. you know, at the end of the day, I was having a great conversation with one of the contemporary Jewish musicians last night. Contemporary Jewish music has intent. Nusach had intent and has intent. And contemporary Jewish music, when you listen to some of the intent of the music and of the musical settings, the same intent is there. We're we're, we're saying right. a lot of the same things. Right. So it, the music is there to try to bring out the mood of the tefillah. And mm-hmm. you know, and and again, as I said this morning on um, on Jam the AM, 
Let me put my moxer. I thought I brought the moxer in. Um, here it is. One of one of my favorite tefillos on um, on Yom Kippur, and in fact we said it this morning in Slichos, is what's the really the, the last of the Slichos we say and Elo, which is really the last Slicho we also said today on what is essentially the last full day of Slichos. And that is um, and, and and in the young Israel of Tinek and all throughout New York will be saying this at about um, six fifty two PM, believe me I have a list. On, uh, on 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 Shabbos afternoon, it's Yehirat Selma Fanecha Shomea Kol Bechios Shatasim Demosenu Binod Chalios Vsatzilenu Mikol Gzeros Achsarios Kilacholavad Enenu Tlios. May it be your will, you who hears the sound of weeping, that you place our tears in your flask permanently, and that you recuse us from all cruel decrees for you for on you alone. Our eyes are fixed, meaning that, you know, we're looking to God to answer our prayers. And um, look, those words resonate with me as somebody who can connect with tefillah, no matter what tune you sing with it. And we'll play a version of this um, in a couple minutes that I think maybe even brings the words home. But I know that I'm in the minority in terms of allowing just the words of tefillah to resonate. So there are a lot of other ways people connect with tefillah, and I think we're going to discover some of them today. But as we be, we, I certainly wanted to begin with the most traditional, and I have a question for you. Can they hear me in the other room? Um, no, you'd have to open the door. I want to hear if, uh, if they can guess who this is. So I'm going to play Kol Nidre. You'll tell me who's singing Kol Nidre. Sorry. Here we go. Think Neil Diamond. Please don't tell me it's Barry Manilow. Johnny Mathis. Wow. <laughs> so, somebody who has really as little connection as possible as you might think to uh, to Col Nidre. Um, and um, so, uh, I just thought that was fascinating. We'll play another version. I have a version from Kolachai, which is beautiful. But um, I want to start with um, one song that, let, let's call it, traditional in the minion that I daven in, and one of the most requested um, or most commented upon songs that I sing when I daven for the Amud for Neila. This is not my favorite version of the song. I apologize to Deddy. We tried to find the um, the Dove Levine version of the song. But this is the aforementioned Yehirat Zone. This is Deddy. This is the Nachum Siegel Network on NachumSiegel.com.
Mark Zamek here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, um, playing one of the most meaningful pieces to me, partly because the tefillah is so meaningful, partly because the music to me is so meaningful. And while we're listening to the song, Harold Geller turns to me and goes, so it's really not all about me, Sinai Nusach. And I guess that's sort of what we're getting to, right? Absolutely. And it's, again, Mark, as you and I have been preparing for this, I'm always concerned about stomping on Nusach. Right. But Nusach, and I have this conversation with our Chazan and Metachin all the time, Nusach needs to to be continue to evolve, continue to grow, and what we're really learning together is we're finding our own ways of relating, and they get woven into Nusach. They get woven into what is what becomes contemporary Nusach. Right, and I and I think that 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 again where it all probably comes down to is where we're all comfortable drawing the lines. Mm-hmm. And um, and I will say we were talking about on the car on the way down. We're not even discussing the whole musical instrument part of it. I mean, because all of the music that we're gonna that we're gonna play, that you've brought, we'll hear the first cut in a minute, um, is all often done without instrumentation, just with acapella, with performance. So it really is much more about the music. And the fact is, look, the song I just played, which I, you know, which I sing during the ila, I'm not singing it during the ila with instruments, but clearly that version of it with Deddy was with instruments. So song written by Yessie Green, a very um there are two two Yessi Green selections I do when I dump for the Umbud. So uh unfortunately I don't have the quality of the voice of Daddy or Dove Levine or Duda Fisher who did one of them. Actually funny story, so I emailed Dove Levine because I wanted his version of that song and he says, Well what no, just use the Daddy the Dudu version of that song. So I said, No no Dudu did the Uva Shofar Gadol, Daddy did uh, he he wrote songs, so he did, he got all mixed up between Dudu and Daddy, and who were doing covers on his songs. Anyway, cute email between me and Dove Levine. Anyway, <clears throat> we have a selection. We have first of all, in a couple of minutes, Josh Nelson, our first guest. We will um, bring him on the air. Um, we'll talk about and introduce him to our audience. So actually, our audience has certainly heard songs of his, um, certainly relating to the Voices for Israel. There was, he had a song on that album. We've been playing other of his songs in the stream lately. I think there's a Matovu that I have of his. I mean, there are a number of songs. Um, in the regular stream, in our regular rotation that uh, that he has done, that our listeners will be familiar with. We'll talk to him in a few minutes. He does lead services over the Yom Naran, but we're going to hear a song by Craig Taubman, Mekor Nefesh Kol Chai, here on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Stunt Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. What's the title of that song? Mekor Nefesh Kol Chai. I was going to say the words that stuck in my head were Baruch Atah, and then I realized that's what we're going to talk about coming out of the song. So one, <laughs> one of the things Harold and I discussed the last time we did a show with uh, that he brought some music for was um, the two big issues I felt that our listeners would be most um, unfamiliar with, let's put it that way, or most uncomfortable with is a different way is the use of Shem Hashem and, and Kalisha. Kalisha we'll discuss in a little while. Um, I'm not going to convince anybody they're right or I'm right or who's right or whatever it is. That's off the, not part of our discussion today, but certainly, nor am I going to convince anybody about the use of Shem Hashem. I, I, I had said off the air that um, I think that um, our, our, uh, there's a community of Svartim that's made the use of the Shem Hashem a little bit more comfortable in um, in contemporary Jewish music, but you had some uh, thoughts. Well, I look at Mekor Nefesh Kolchai, and uh, when we have our next next guest, Josh Nelson started the 92nd Street Y Yamim Noreim services with Mekor Nefesh Kolchai. Mm-hmm. It sets the stage for the intention of of the High Holidays, and, and again, Josh will talk about that more. But I I wanted to start with that because the Shem Hashem question comes up all the time when I when I do talk about contemporary Jewish music and compare to um, to other other forms of Jewish music, and it feel you know. It's, what's interesting, Mark, is you know, is over the last year and a half, and I love, I'm loving this dialogue because over the last year and a half, we've seemed to have seen some softening on this, and you know, you and I have talked right. about it a lot more casually. And you know, when we did our first our first show, it was like, no, 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 let's right. stick to stick to the script, and let's we know that there are things that we can't talk about, but it feels good that we're able to find this common ground. Well, I think that when we all can can articulate the fact that we really are on the same spectrum and we're all just drawing our lines in a different place, I think it puts it into perspective because, look, the fact is I, I daven in a shul with there were three minyanim um, over, over the high holidays, that uh, three services over the high holidays, all of which have different tones and some of which sing more and some of which sing less and some of which have uh, higher chazan and some of which don't. Because even in, you know, where every single word is said the same in each service, people have a different feeling for what they're looking for out of, out of their davening. But that's an interesting question. And, and when I get into differences in minyanim, so the, where I daven, we have, we have two minyanim. We have a, a, a traditional minyan, and this year we have an intergenerational uh, minyan where we'll do a lot more participatory singing. We'll do less of the 
less of the piyutim, more of the common tefillot. And, and what I'm doing on Yom Kippur is I'm going to weave a, nig, a new nigun through it. Mm-hmm. But when in an Orthodox minion, is it is it's the same tefillot? Are you you know do you skip some of the piyutim or are you? It's, is it a melody question or is it a you know a communal singing question? I think all those questions go along with it. Um, in fact, I um, so one of the things that I think has evolved in let's call it the modern Orthodox community is I can ask Miriam Wallach who just walked into way on this. When you go to shul on Rosh Hashanah, where's her mic? She has no microphone. There's a microphone over there. Because when I was a kid, um, and you can answer this too, since you lead services, Mr. Siegel. Right. We're now talking to Nachum, not to Miriam. No, both. Let's um, clarify. When I was a kid. And there were, Piyutim said during the tefillah of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the chazan read, and then the congregation repeated. Now, in all the shuls that I go to, the chazan starts a song and everybody just sings along the whole piyut. Ours is half and half. Right? Like, v'chom aminim, we're just singing the whole... Now, the truth is, I would argue, the way we did v'chom aminim was wrong in the first place. Because responsive reading is, hodul Hashem kitov, so we were probably doing it wrong in the first place, but we I read an article um, this past Shabbos, which was probably from a two-week-old newspaper because I have to start building up for the holiday um, by slowing down my reading in advance, that the Rav would have posited that responsive reading is responsive reading and you shouldn't be singing along together. So it could be that we're all doing is wrong. I have no idea. But there is no right and wrong. So, And I'm going to go, go back to you and say, look, we ha- there are there are traditions that I've been in where you, when you do kililam chazdo, one, the, chaz, the, chaz, the chazan does the first thing and he does kililam chazdo, and then you read the, the congregation reads the next one. So, and I've been in com- communities where it is very consistent right. that you say the baltvila says the ticha and the chatima is, is is the congregation. So it's not right or wrong. Right, it's, I, it's minhag. Right, it's minhag and, and I also think that even in my lifetime it's evolving. The other thing that evolved. I think almost any shul that I would have davened in Tinek 40 years ago would say all the Yotzros, because now Piyutim in Shachros, um, and now we, nobody says any of them. Now it's straight Birchos Kriyashma. Um, but back in, I remember as a kid growing up, everything in that Machsa we said between Yotzer R and Shmon Esrei. Right, but wasn't that more of the German influence, say the entire Machsa type thing, and really dependent on which shul you were in? Or you're saying that it's a modern thing that people just have no patience and they got rid of it? I don't know. On the other hand, in Tinek, half the shuls now are saying full slichos on Yom Kippur. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, Rabbi Neuberger, absolutely. Full slichos for Shachos Mincha and Mincha. They never get a break then. There's no break um, in Kippur in that shul, I guarantee you. But there are a few shuls in Tinek that are doing that. But Nachum, I will agree with you in that. I think it's a very German-influenced thing right. where you know, the, the whole machzor you read cover to cover to cover. Correct. One of the things that I learned is you find the things – there are zamat bat filah. There are certain things that you have to do. But then there are there are team and That's things nice. that you insert that, you know, I want to say optional. But, I, but you know, there are also um, – there are kavanot that are not in the in the, in the machzor that we use. Right. And you teach it, whether you teach it as a nigun, you teach it as something that, is, you know, off of a off of a piece of paper that, that's handed out. It, you know, and, I, we, and, and we do that too. I mean, yeah. I think the best example of that is the art scroll text with Unusana Tokef, where they tell the story of how the Unusana Tokef was written, and, right. you, and everybody says, oh, I read that every year. It gets me in the mood of saying it. <laughs> it's the same thing as putting those words... Anyway, Josh Nelson is probably jumping through the phone, trying to uh, comment on it. So why don't you introduce him? Josh Nelson. Josh, are you there? 
I am, in fact. Hi, gentlemen. How are you, man? Good to hear you guys. Absolutely. So we're talking about high holidays, and Josh, I, you know, I, I got to say, I was watch. I, I saw a lot of what you did at the 92nd Street Y, and the, the fact that you had that you opened with uh, with Craig Taubman's Mekor Nefesh Kol Chai, to, for me, set the stage. Um, so talk a little, you know, talk a little bit about contemporary Jewish music and high holidays, and what is what you know. And you just heard this conversation between Mark and uh, and Nachum and I. Weigh in a little bit on you know Kavana Keva. You know the structure versus the structure versus the intent of high holidays. Sure, I feel like if you were watching the Jewish world from you know a mile or two above the earth and look down, it would seem clearly for these few days of Yemi Marine that all of a sudden you know our population triples or quadruples because everyone shows up. <laughs> right. You know, and and so it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to be sort of the one responsible for designing you know, how to enable people to have the spiritual experience they're looking for, particularly when, for these few days out of the year, all of a sudden, everyone shows up looking. Right. Um, and it, which I think changes, you know, clearly your approach from what it might be on, say, a typical Shabbat or even, you know, a smaller holiday. Um, but I, I find it to be constantly challenging to try to, you know, maintain, you know, what I think most of us attribute as this sort of intense decorum and heavy responsibility of this time in terms of our own soul-searching and self-examination, and the need for that to be accessible and available to people in a way that they not are simply, that they're not simply just sitting and, you know, viewing it, uh, but actually are present and immersed in it. Right, people and, don't want to be sung at anymore. Well, you know, it's interesting, because I remember being six and five years old and being in Shul and sitting next to my dad and, Holding onto his seat seat and staring up at this cousin who was singing in this tremendously huge voice and singing at me, make no mistake about it. But there was power in that. And, and I, it's important to me to not throw that away from the experience. Like to me, that is part of the powerful experience that it's all about balance between, it's balance between Kava and Kavana. It's balance between hearing, you know, the voice of the cousin and the congregational voice. It's balanced between Hebrew and English. It's balanced between, you know, it's Rav Cook, really, in a nutshell. How do you take what is what we hold dear and, and celebrate and cherish, and how do we make it holy and make it relevant at the same time for a community that struggles to find relevancy and connection through much of the year? It, it seems to me, again, as somebody who comes at it from a different background, you have a much harder job in leading services than I do. First of all, the expectations, because you're a professional and I'm not, are probably much higher for you. But I, I would suspect that, um, you know, for me, um, you know, I'm, I would say, are we ever ready for Yom Kippur, right? But I've been, I've been in shul every morning at, you know, 5 o'clock for Slichos for the past two weeks, and I'm ready for Yom Kippur. And I, and I suspect a lot of your um, constituents are pretty much coming in cold, and so that must be a very hard challenge for you to to draw them in, to to because you're starting from such a different place. I think that's true. I think it's also it, it comes. It, it really is a different ballgame altogether on a very specific level, and that you know you're you're talking about a community of people that identify very strongly with their Judaism and they identify with it culturally as well as spiritually, but they're not in shul on a regular basis, like other communities are. And so 
to some extent it is that they are coming in cold, but they also are very much coming in with a great longing and a great expectation and need that the experience of this worship will fulfill that for them and will draw that line and make that point of access for them to, you know, find that connection and have the experience that the Chagim are supposed to provide um, when they don't have, I, I don't want to say the benefit, but maybe not the benefit of having, you know, the buildup of a daily worship experience. Right. right. I, wasn't ma- I wasn't making a value judgment. I was more of saying no, sure. different. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact is, I mean, as somebody who has, le- who has you know, Davin Kondidre for probably 20 years, you know, even at that level, I have to be farther along in my preparation for Yom Kippur than everybody else in the room because they're coming in the room relying on me at least through those three that that repetition of Kol Nidre to get them to get their head in the game in the Yom Kippur game. So, you know, it's, it's I think that challenge is on a lower level, but it seems to me your job is much harder in terms of the how do you, how do you engage people who might be connected. Who I I totally get you know connected to their Judaism, but maybe not connected to it to tefillah in a way that they are for these few days a year. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know if it's harder; it's just different. It's just that you know, on, but on, interestingly, on some level, it's exactly the same. And I'm sure you know it carries the same challenge of you know how do you how do you encapsulate the voice of a community in prayer and and make them feel part of that message and part of the spirit of the Kahal as it grows. Um, and it is challenging, and it's also extraordinarily beautiful. Right. I mean, look, I, I find Yom Kippur to be, uh, you know, the, the, you'll hear um, those of you tuned in later to Charlie Harari. It, it, it's a, it, it can be a very uplifting day for people. Sure. And, Absolutely. And, Josh, I want, want to have get your observations on something. You know, something that, I, that struck me about the 92nd Street Y uh, experiences is that, you're not just talking to the kihila that's physically present. There is a virtual community, and there is a, the um, the army community, and various others. How does that feel for you as the baltfila? In that you're connecting with the physical community, but there's a virtual community out there as well that you're that you're 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 uplifting. Um, how does that feel? What what makes that different than just being a baltfila in in a in a in a congregation? I think that there's great power in the intimacy of connection with people when they're in your space um, and making eye contact with people while davening is happening and while we're all sort of in this spiritual boat together. That goes a really long way with people who are in the room. The challenge of, the challenge of sort of creating that experience digitally, I guess, and it's probably a weird way to put it, but to try to you know, establish that connection, I think it comes down to vulnerability. I think it comes down to the fact that you have to eliminate the self-protective walls that we all, you know, sort of carry around with each other in society and on a daily basis. And you have to be just a clean, transparent slate. And and I work really hard at that, knowing that there are people, you know, kind of all over the world on Army bases, but also, you know, on television. And I think we're one of the most highly viewed high-holiday services in the world. Um which is interesting on a lot of levels because it is so alternative in approach. Um, but, you know, at the same time, anyone who's tuning in online on their computer on Yontif is looking for something a little bit different anyway. Um, so I or to be to in control it. a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if, they, if they disconnect from you, they can turn the monitor off and you're gone. Right. 
You know, they're, they're not sort of down to the physical space at all. It's funny because I'm sort of not into – I'm much more of a morning person than I am at night person. I have a hard time doing slichos the first Saturday night. And so there's a very early service in Teaneck that I go to on Sunday morning um, that uh, a couple of years ago, they, they're looking around at each other at 6 o'clock and nobody went up. So they say, okay, you go. And so I did the slichos in the 20, 25 minutes that it took to – to do and I and when I was at home later that afternoon I saw that Chazan um, Helfgott um, from Park East had um, they had recorded his slichos and I watched those slichos online for a little while and I will promise you I'm absolutely not exaggerating I did the entire slichos in less time than it took him to do Ashrei <laughs> so it's all a matter of you know a lot of people just want you know I I, I feel like I want to be connected I feel like I want to hear the you know, be involved in the tradition, but I'm just not prepared to put on a suit and tie and sit in shul. And if there are ways that we can bring those people closer, call it a vote, right? The other piece... And I think a lot of people have a really difficult time with organized, you know, Jewish communal worship based on the fact that, you know, sometimes we do it really well and sometimes we don't. And some of that is specific to shuls and clergy and time and place and all sorts of factors. And if you happen to have come up in your Jewish experience in a, in a negative environment for whatever reason, it's really, really hard if you're not steeped in it communally to get past that and right. to find a different, you know, point of access to come back. And for a lot of people, this is an easier way for them to really have a spiritual experience on their own terms and to think about what the holidays are about and to try to reconnect. Uh, I, I will. Necessary. I will argue to that that um, not argue is the wrong word. My comment to that, because it's 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 very it's sadly very true, but my my, rep- my my response to that is Judaism is perfect. Jews are not. So um, unfortunately, we probably blame our upbringing on factors not related to what what's actually the true part. Like Harold and I were talking about before, you know, this is you know we're we're negotiating around the edges at this point. We're not disagreeing on the fundamentals. Sure, absolutely. Josh, absolutely. Something, something I wanted to talk to you about a little bit is you you walk this fine line between so, between being a song leader, a baltfila, and even I look at some of those stuff that you've done in, turn of, in terms of chazanut. How do you walk that fine line on the high holidays? Um, and how do you you know? And I, and how do you decide? You know, I, I need to be more to use more of a traditional melody here. I can. Be a little bit more on the edge. Where you know where is the line for you? You know the the chagim are a challenge because there's less opportunity to call audibles. Hmm. You know when you're in with a when you're in with a group of people on a, on a typical Shabbos, you sense the room and you feel where the community is at. You feel well, this they're up or they're down or they're longing or they're disconnected or they need to be energized. And there's always next sh- and there's always next Shabbos. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and in this case, you know it's so the structure of it is so tight and the timing of it is so considered that these decisions get made in advance and so it, it's a different experience to some extent. I mean, look, we always plan really carefully in every experience we provide, um, but these are a little bit above and beyond in that case. I would say for most worship, you know, most places have that experience with this. Um, I'm all about balance, uh, really, and realizing that everybody in the room needs something different and, and is going to find a connection in a different way. And that to only provide one point of access to a group of people is to do a great disservice. Um, and that's, that's always sort of my, my guiding principle. 
Um, am I thinking not necessarily about what I would like to sing, but am I thinking about what is going to move them the most in this moment? And, you know, you think about text and prayer and community as a vehicle. Um, it's something that helps people move from one place to another place. And, and everybody who steps in front of a group of people in any context, whether you're a politician or a public speaker or a clergy person, you know, to some extent the principle of it is all the same. You help people move from point A to point B, and you use different tools to make that happen. And when you, you know, planning this journey for them is all about thinking about keeping everybody connected as much as you can, even when all these people are of different ages and from different different backgrounds and different points of view, and trying to make sure that everybody everybody feels like they're holding on in their way as we move through the holiday. Um, and that, I think if you stick to that, then, you know, you're constantly working, you know, to really create Kahal and to create community. Now, Josh, so Mark, Mark's giving me the uh, the signal here to wrap up a little bit, but there's something I want to. You and I ta- emailed a little bit last night. I, my original selection was uh, was 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 a beautiful beautiful piece of yours called Lador Vador, which to me is an amazing piece of contemporary Jewish music because it isn't just the classical the classic words of the of the prayer. It's interpretation it's making it relevant to a contemporary person but you said no i want to use this new avinu malkenu you know how do you you know firstly why you know why the you know why the choice between lador vador and something else that might have english interpretation to avinu malkenu which is a beautiful melody but is the classic words but with with a a very with a with an excellent nusach and sound to it but to you know, in, in choice of your own music, how, you know how, what what makes that makes you make that distinction. I think that there are pieces of the liturgy that resonate with our community in ways that maybe we don't even all we don't all fully understand to the extent which that happens, and, and maybe you know some of it is enculturation, some of it is we've been with them since we were young, and for me this text one of those texts. I think for probably all of us it is. Um, and, you know, I take great care and pride in, in creating new liturgy and new poetry that's reflective of, you know, the Jewish cultural experience. In this case, with the holidays, I think it's important to realize that we fall into, we fall into patterns and that we associate great spiritual power with those patterns. Um, and at some point, as is Judaism, as is life, those patterns will shift, and the way we express those sentiments will shift. And it's important to me to also be writing and creating culturally uh, to that aim, and to be trying to, you know, reset liturgy in a way that is contemporary in a new way, but still holds on to the place from where we've come. Uh, and so for me, you know, look, this is a really... This is a powerful swing to really stretch with an Avina Malkanu as a composer is a powerful swing. And uh, I've done it now, you know, multiple times in worship this year. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing because people's eyes begin wide, wide open. Like, this melody came down from Sinai. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's, like, also, it's also probably a big risk because my guess is that the Avina Malkanu that we sing in um that I'm familiar with is probably a very widespread 
song that's sung in in many spectrums of the Jewish community, right? The Avinu Malkeinu. If somebody's coming in, almost everyone's going to know that song, and now you're writing something else that people are that they already have a song associated with. It's a big risk as a as right. a performer. Right. Well, it's prototypical. Also, you know, people say, "Can you sing Ose Shalom?" The Ose Shalom, right? <laughs> right, which was which included on a CD, you know, attached to Tarak Moshev when it came down. But you know what it actually is is you know Hirsch. And so, I mean, these are all things that feel thousands and thousands of sure. people clearly are not. And it's a natural progression for for that change to happen and that shift to happen. And it is it can be dangerous and uncomfortable to be on the providing end of that shift. Um, but I also think it's very necessary for there not to only be one or two or three viable outlets for a piece of text, because music and melody, just like Nusach, has so much subtextual relationship to the actual words um, that I find it really important to be able to provide alternative expressions musically and otherwise to these pieces of text. Josh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. So next is Josh Nelson of Ian Volcano, recorded live at the 92nd Street Y.
show here on the Nachum Siegel Network, Mark Zamek with Harold Geller, preparing for Yom Kippur tomorrow night, around the world, Jews around the world, observing the high holy days, the ten days of repentance culminating on Yom Kippur, that's Josh Nelson, um, I mean the more we talk about this Harold, the closer I think that we really are, um, and, 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 and it's interesting as we plan the show, it's playing out maybe the way I thought of, but I don't know, maybe very different. And um, I asked our next guest to come because I thought in some levels he was the bridge. So um, we welcome to the uh, Nachum Siegel Network Airwaves, a name that is familiar to many of our listeners, The le- as Nachum calls him, the legendary Zalman Malatek, the musical director, let me see if I get this right, of the Folks Bina Yiddish Theater. Did I get that right, Zalman? Yeah, the Nashville Yiddish Theater. Hi, how are yeah, you? Good, how are you? Welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. I'm enjoying the show tremendously. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I thought that you, and I had said to Harold on our way down here today, that you are the bridge for me. Because on the one hand, I know you've been involved in, in, in some of these um, less traditional, I don't say that in a negative way, less traditional services. But yet, when we had this discussion about the show, we were sitting in the Orthodox shul that we both davened on Chavez. Right. So, it, it, you know, it, can you help us explain to our listeners, you know, a little bit more about how these things are maybe much more similar than we think that that they are. Well, you know, we're we're talking basically about how how to connect with our audience. You know, I mean, you know, as a, as a performer, that's where you know, as a as a as a chazan, as a as a pianist, as a guitar, you know, as a guitarist, as a songwriter, you know, in the end. As a rabbi, you know, we're talk, we're, we're looking at this crowd that's assembling and we're trying to find how we're going to connect with them. What, what, you know, and, and of course in the Orthodox tradition, we have a guide, we have guidelines. When I, when I took over at the, when I was first asked to do the music at the 92nd Street Y some 30 years ago, um, more than 30 years ago, I, I came into a situation where, you know, 1,200 people between the, the Kaufman and the listening rooms would come together, and people would never come to show besides Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and they felt a need to be in services for that day. And the Chazanim, who were of, uh, from the conservative, from the conservative movement, would, I had a choir, which meant four voices, SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, and I was at the organ. Now, the, the, the repertoire was based on the conservative uh, nosach, but, but, you know, used many of the traditional melodies. With every year, and I did, this, I did this service for 30 years, 
I felt the need to really make sure that the audience was connecting. And it, what it meant was turning it from this presentational performance, which it started out as, because the audience just wanted to sit there. The 90-second street white audience at that time just wanted to sit there and listen. But as it's, you know, with, with, with each year, more and more you felt that the audience wanted to participate. And the rabbis encouraged that. So I started to delve in from, bring in music from all different Jewish traditions. I went to, you know, old Hebrew folk songs and found a way to, well, to wave them in somewhere, somewhere throughout the services. I, for the Yisko service, I added a couple of Yiddish songs, which I felt, you know, was an obvious connection, talking, you know, a mention about this culture that was almost decimated, and it fit in for, you know, three minutes into the Yisko service every, every, every year. So I, it was my that was that was the that was the, the 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 thing that guided me as I was as as I was conducting these services that I knew that I had to find the music that people could connect with, based on the tefillah to 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 the greatest extent. But then sometimes it was just about finding the me, the melody, the nigunim, you know, and the and the and the atmosphere of sound that would put people in a contemplative. Place, a spiritual place. Remember, these are people who are most of them, you know, for, in my years, were not literate in terms of the of, of the of the of the Maxer at all. But they were, you know, reading in English and listening to the Tzvilas in Hebrew at some point. But it was about connecting. So that's really what I did, you know, in those early years. And I'm delighted to hear that Josh, you know, is taking it to this, you know. Another place, which obviously you know the audience is not only ready for, but you know eagerly, eagerly coming to. It's interesting because we've been saying all along. I think the way you're articulating what your goals were are have almost zero difference with what I think about before I dive in for Rosh Hashanah and what every right. from from every spectrum of anybody leading services. By the way, on any given Shabbos. Of you know what can I do? I mean I always joke. I mean I'll say it on the air. I'm sure I've said it on the air before. You know what I think about during the Ela? Do you know what I think about during the Ela? Avram, you know what I think about during the Ela? Just, just no, no, not eating. Now nah, by then it's already over. Um, I think about an Ela finishing on time. And I actually have, in order to make that easier for me, I have a spreadsheet that I, as everybody might not be surprised, where I punch in the time at the end, and then I print, can print out exactly where I need to do to pace myself properly. Because I'm concerned with making sure the tefillah is, an, because ultimately when it's over, it's over, and people don't want to sit around for another half hour because I didn't time it properly, right? So I'm very, very concerned with uh-huh. everybody in the room's attitude. A number of us have been dominating for many years together. And their expectation is, I can daven it, I can focus on it, because I know that Zomik's going to finish on time. And um, But I think that all Bali Tefila should at least realize it's not about them. It's how we engage with the people who have come to daven. And again, I think that you're, what you're articulating that you were able to do in the 92nd Street Y and what Josh was articulating is in no way different than what every single other... Right. The, the main difference, of course, is... That we, you know, we are not bound by, you know, the 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 um, the, the strict adherence to to the to the mosque. Yeah, but I would argue too many people 
who daven in Orthodox shuls these days aren't bound enough by the strictures of the <laughs> Moxer. Meaning that if, if, if Sherwood Goffin walked into our shul on Shabbos and heard, you know, Erev Shoshoshanim sung be, you know, being sung for Kedusha, or some of the songs people sing for Shachras, or, 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 or somebody changing the Nusuch for Musaf Kedusha on Yom Kippur, right? right. Which, which is very common, right, yeah. in Orthodox shuls. Somebody like Sherwood Goffin, we're going to ask Chazan Ragaznitsky in a few minutes, they would be flabbergasted by that. Right, and, and rightfully so in that context, right? Absolutely, in that context. But when you're talking to an audience of, like, people who are coming to show for one time a year, right, they're not, they're, they have no idea of what the Nusach is. They want to be connected. Correct. They want to see, the, they see how this text is relevant today to them in 2014. And we know how, how rev- relevant it is. But it's our job as, you know, in, in that setting, you know, not, you know, with, with, with complete agreement to what you're saying in terms of, of, the, of the Orthodox, you know, setting. But in a different setting, it's our job to find what is that hook, what's going to get them engaged to that text. Correct. What's- but my point is that in the Orthodox, for, for every commenter on our app who's bothered by this discussion, right, right I promise you... They don't realize that they're doing the exact same thing that's bothering them. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. And likely are the same people who would say, if they're only coming to engage on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, maybe that maybe they're le- less valuable. Zalman, you uh, made a very no, but no, Zalman, you made a very one excellent uh, um, distinction between you know the fact that the people that you're that are there are your audience. It's it's a distinction between an audience and a kihila. You know, this audience wants to be engaged and. You know, you're 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 doing something that engages them, gives them the spiritual connection that they're looking for. It's not about finding the the keva, the structure. It's connecting with those that are there. Right, right, so, right. And that's 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 the that's the that's our challenge. You know, as as you know, as people who are leading the these services. Um, I, I am I am sensitive of the time that you have. I know you have a meeting in a couple of minutes. I do have a song that I wanted to let you introduce. Yeah, which um, one would which one were you thinking? I of? wanted to play the the Zusha song you wanted me to play. Oh, great, great. So I know it's not part of the high holiday liturgy, but I thought it was an inspirational song. And why don't you just tell us a second about it? So you know, Zusha is a uh, a new band. It's uh, it was formed in the East Village. Um, as they call them, by three neo-Hasidic dudes with less passion for college, more passion for music. They borrow lines from ancient liturgies. Zusha's music is a blend of jazz, reggae, folk, ska, gypsy, swing, and traditional. The, and uh, they have a following, and they're begin, they're you know they're starting out all you know for um, to all full disclosure. The percussionist and one of the voices is my son Alicia. So enjoy. Thank you very much, Zaman. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Stunt Show. Mark Thank you so Zamek. much. And good yantav and gemar tov. Gemar tov to you as well. Mark Zamek with Harold Geller on the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network with Zusha. <laughs> I'm not a 
here on the Nachum Siegel Network, courtesy of the Malatik family. Thanks, Zalman Malatik. Thank uh, Josh Nelson. Mark Zamek with Harold Geller here on NachumSiegel.com. Top of the hour, super-sized stunt show. Uh, throwback Thursday coming up, probably about the bottom of the hour when we wrap up. We thought we'd be playing more music, but I guess we could still play more music um, here on a uh, pre-Yom Kippur version of the stunt show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Um, and it um, so basically the, the the premise of the show was to talk about different ways that people engage with their tefillah over the high holidays. Certainly, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in particular. Certainly, for many Yom Kippur in particular, we started out with Josh Nelson, who I would say for most of our listeners is way not traditional, but um, and then uh, transitioned into Zalman Malatek, who I think is a bridge for many people. And now I would guess we're going into what you, we might call the way traditional, but I think we're discovering that everything is much closer than we thought it was, and it's my pleasure to welcome Chazan Benny Ragaznitsky back to the Nakam Siegel Network. Welcome, Chazan. Thank you so much, and Gamar Chasimatova to you and all the listeners. Gamar Chasimatova to you as well. Thank you for joining us. So, you know, I, 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 I felt when I asked you to, 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 to join us today that you were here to be the counterpoint to the contrarians that I was speaking to for the past hour, but I'm finding that maybe uh, we're all in much more agreement than I thought, because the goal seems to be on everybody's part, is just to inspire the people who have chosen to pray with us on Rosh Hashanah. Right. I mean, no doubt that's the goal, but not uh, losing sight of the fact that you have to go back to the source. People are comfortable with what they know, and uh, no matter how much innovation you want to bring into the service, you have to be respectful of the liturgy and the tunes and the nusach that has been around for thousands of years. I think if you're able to combine both worlds, you do a great job. Right, and I think that that's certainly the effort on the part of many people. I think I would argue, though, that while you or I or, or, or um, other professionals like you know where those lines can be drawn, the average shliach tzibor in the modern Orthodox community for Yom Narom probably draws those lines in a very different place. I, I agree. And the problem is that there's no manual or guideline that tells you here is where you can interpret yourself. I have one in my machzor that Sherwood Goffin gave me. I can hand it, it out to everybody. <laughs> I'd love to see it. <laughs> but, but one of those things is don't change Kedusha for Musaf, certainly. Uh, but, but again, I've heard any number of people say, hey, if this is a Kedusha that I say for every Shabbos, why can't I change the Nusach for Musaf um, on, on, on Yom Kippur? And, and sort of that's what becomes one of those untouchable things. Um, I'm wondering if you can articulate for, um, for for our listeners, 
you know, because I, I think that most people internal, most people who daven in Orthodox shuls get what you're saying, um, and are comfortable with with what you're saying, but not, uh, but might not be sure why, and the nuance. Like for example, I, I know there's a difference between chakras and musaf on a regular Shabbos, but I would guess that 90% of the Balabatim out there don't know there's a difference between those kedushas. Can you just give people a little bit of uh, a sense of the history of how it evolved and and where they can go find answers to some of these questions? So that's, that's a very good question because some of the answers lie in mystical Kabbalistic tradition that was not committed to any specific writing. It was Masora from one generation to the other. This is how it was done. And when that happens is you get the interpretation of every generation and every city and community doing it in their own way. But what we do know that the general parameters were that Shachris was the opener, so to speak, for Musaf, which it is. It's, it's the warm-up act, both, both practically and both spiritually. It's the reason why in Musaf you say Shema Yisrael, which is the penultimate prayer, but in Shachris you would only say Mimkomcha. It's, you build up to the crescendo of the most important part of the service. So in the same way you do that in the music, you know, if you were a performer, you wouldn't get up in the concert and sing your best number right at the first um, act. You would wait to the end. In the very same way when you come to shul and you're davening chakras, the tunes, the melodies, the traditions are, if you could argue, much more simplistic than they are in Musaf. Musaf is much more deliberate. There's a certain way to say Shema Yisrael. There's a certain way to say certain prayers. And, and you need to stick to that, uh, if you can, in order to, do, to have an effective davening. But as far as where, where the sources are, some, uh, as I'm sure others have said, uh, there is this concept called Misenai, that there are certain tunes that were, according to tradition, given to Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai. Now, obviously, I can't vouch whether that's true or not. Well, we were all there, Chazan. Correct, we were all there, but I don't remember some of the melodies. <laughs> it's been a few years. But what I could say is that Misenai doesn't necessarily mean that they were given at Sinai. It could also mean that it is as so important that we don't change the tune, so it's as if it was given at Sinai. And so there are certain modes, just as an example, you know, but when you take uh, the Avoda, the, the, the highlight of the service on Yom Kippur is the Avoda, what the Kohen Gadol used to do in the service in the Beis Hamidosh. So there are a number of times that you say Vakoanim, and there is the tune that goes, ay, 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 ay. The, all the, the world sings pretty much the same tune as you're bringing out the, um, the, the, that part of the service. And so it's the tradition that you say the ay, ay, ay seven times. Why seven? Because if you sing at seven, that correlates to the seven times that the Kohen Gadol would sprinkle the blood in the Beis Hamikdash as part of the service. So that intertwined within the music is deep symbolism and meaning to the words. Or, for example, when you open the, the um, Amida on Rosh Hashanah and you start Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, throughout Ashkenazic communities, you would hear the following motif. Elokei Yaakov. Why that? Because Yaakov was the one who traveled, who went through so many journeys. So the music follows through. It almost threads through the life of Yaakov. Avraham was more simple, and so the music there is more simple and awesome. It, there are a lot in the music that really lies the story of what you're trying to say to the people. I had a conversation with somebody. I mentioned Tanakhma on the air this morning, this past Shabbos, because um, it, now it wasn't even you know Rosh Hashanah anymore. It was regular Shabbos davening and. He um, he sang uh, I died at I too, and I would call it for kedusha for shachris And I said, can't you just read the words and figure out that that tune doesn't match those words? And I think that most people, I mean, you're going at, at a way level beyond, um, you know, even at the most simple level. 
do the do, do the do, does the tune you're trying to use to evoke emotion match the emotion the words are clearly saying saying and i think that's something that even in the modern orthodox community in the orthodox community most people aren't even paying attention to right and by the way what's true is when you when you hear a chaz you hear about fila when you want to know if they made the the right impact it's not always about the song it's whether they were able to correlate between the meaning of the words and the passion and the soulfulness of the song. So uh, I remember a young Baltfila came to me a few years ago, and he said to me, oh, you know, I'm going to sing Rosh Hashanah Yikasevun, which is the penultimate prayer. And I said, what tune are you going to use? And he said, well, I'm going to sing the wedding tune, Kate Sad Meraktin, because everybody knows it. Okay, yeah. And I was like, clearly you don't know the words, <laughs> because that's the last thing you want to do at that moment in the service. Right. It's funny because, and I, and I, this is a, a, an argument even in, 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 in our little circle here in the room, Nachum and I... Um, and I'm sure Cantor Goffin would be upset to hear, the tune that I use for Yala Tachner Nenu is Josh Groban's You Raise Me Up. Okay. Um, now, you, now you taught me something. Right. Well, first of all, it fit, for, from the meaning of the words, right? Yala Tachner Nenu, You Raise Me Up. Okay. It fits with the words. It fits with the idea of the motif. It fits with the mood of the davening. And for me, it's, 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 it's a range that I can manage in. And um, and it's something that sort of opens everybody up to the rest of the slichos to follow. And it's for the past few years. And in our shul, there's another minion that use the same tune also. It goes over well. But I'm sure in many Orthodox shuls, people would be mortified. Well, Baruch Hashem, in those Orthodox shuls, they probably don't know that it's Josh Groban's You Raise Me Up. <laughs> but um, people would be mortified to hear, you know, but again... Chazan Gafen would be mortified to hear of Shoshoshanim and Musaf Kedusha, So Right. But the argument for doing this, uh, you raise me up. For those sort of songs, is that when you hear a tune, the first thing you wonder is, where did I hear that? Right. What meaning does that have for me? And what you're doing is you're really bringing out the words, because most people don't even understand what does Yale mean. Right. So, but, but when you give them something that's contemporary that they can connect with, and it's words that are in English, I think you're, uh, even though m- many people may not agree, but I think you're ultimately doing what the tefillah needs to do, which is connect with the hearts of the people. Well, I'm ultimately doing what my daughters make me do, because I've been singing for a few years, and they refuse to let me change that song. So uh, ultimately, there's some of that, too. i got to go home at the end. Um, so I, I think that one of the things that Harold and I have been discovering over the past couple of weeks talking about this, and certainly as we've been talking about it today, is... It's really all about connecting with the audience behind you, and, and I think that the range of of what you might do um, in in you know in your school versus the range of what Josh Nelson might do, where he's leading services, are really just an expectation of the audience to connect in their way with a tefillah. Correct, but but the caveat being that the home base has to be the original tradition, because the danger of losing any, you know, if anybody, let's say someone would want to start Kol Nidre with a much more contemporary tune that many more people may know is that in a few years you would then lose that tradition. What's beautiful about Atfilot is that tomorrow night when we go to shul, the world over in some way is going to sing in Ashkenazi world the same motif for Kol Nidre. Right. And that was the premise we started the whole show with. Exactly. And the other thing that's, that, that's important here, and the theme that we're see, hearing throughout this show is it's not about is there a line, it's where is where are you comfortable in drawing the line between what is Mesinai, what is traditional, what can you be creative with thematically, and what can what can your kihila resonate to or, or relate to while still being engaged and engaged in the in the proper mood. Right, right, and and being that that ultimately what is a shaliach tzibur, you're representing your tzibur. 
I've always looked at, before I get up to Davin, and look at the congregation. Who is in this congregation? Who are they? Where, do, where are they from? What's their story? It, well, your job is to inspire them. Right. Yeah, sure, you have to keep the tradition. But if you sang all the tradition and you didn't sing one melody that they felt connected to, then you didn't do your job. Right, and that's the ultimate. And I, and I think that, again, probably too many about to feel like care too much about what they sound like and not enough if they're inspiring everybody else. Right. So, um, well, we thank you for your time today. I know it's a it's your busy season, and um, there's a lot going on. And um, uh, we really appreciate your your perspective and your and your sense of history and reverence, um, you know, that you bring to the table for uh, our, our, our I guess our most important day of the year. So, Hazen Benny Rogozinski, thank you for joining us here on the Nachum Siegel Network. My pleasure, Gamar Chasimatova, and an easy fast to all the listeners. To you as well. Thank you. And so coming out, we're going to play Chazen Ruggiznitsky's Yala here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Yala <laughs> Mark Zamek here with Harold Geller on the, um, that's still me, right? Um, Mark Zamek with Harold Geller on the Stunt Show, a supersized version of the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network for a Thursday, Erev, Erev Yom Kippur. We've talked about it for uh, a few times. I've mentioned it, and Harold was anxious to hear it. So we are going to play the uh, written by Yossi Green as performed by Dove Levine, uh, as sung by me on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Uva Shofar Gadol Yitaka. It's not a here on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Great Dove Levine, Uva Shofar Gadol Yitaka from Rasana Tokif here on the Nachum Siegel Network. So I don't know if that's traditional enough for you, Harold. Mark, it was a wonderful, engaging melody. But it's I've got to learn this right, for, yeah. for Shabbos morning. Yeah, no, this is this years. is one this is years of work. Right. Well, this is definitely um, uh, it was this song was in my head for years before I dove for the Umud, um, uh, because in our circles people don't aren't don't generally don't lead services on Rosh Hashanah until they have kids. Um, the custom that that comes from Avrami, trivia question, no, you know where that comes from, is because the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, it, um, the Pasuk says, that the Kohen Gadol couldn't pray for Kahal Yisrael until he had already prayed for himself or already gotten done Kapara for himself and for his family. So until you can do Kapara for yourself and your family, you can't really help everybody else do Kapara. So in our tradition for a long time. So definitely a program that's gone in different directions. That's what we call it the stunt show, either Crash and Burn or Radio Gold. And this is, as usual, somewhere in between. Um, <laughs> so what's our what's our next selection? So we're going to uh, depart a little bit. We're going to hear some something from Naomi Less. Okay. And this, her uh, it's her it's her um, her interpretation of Patach Lanushar. Let me get my app ready to watch the comments.
I think I have to agree with Chaz and Benny on this one. Um, a number of years ago, must have been four years ago already, um, Yom Kippur was Sunday night. And um, I, I stayed home that Friday. I had like four or five conference calls. That's like my limit. Once I get to four conference calls on a Friday, I'm not going into Manhattan. I'm going to be on the phone anyway. And I, by come Shabbos, I, I couldn't get a sound out of my mouth. I was, you know, because you you're just project differently on the phone, especially when you're home and you don't have your regular, whatever. And then I had done a lot of talking on Sunday. I had nothing on Shabbos. So I said to Michael Wimfheimer at the time, we only had um, two minyanim in our shul, not three. Now we have three, and he and I split the second and the third minion mostly. And I said to um, Michael um, that he was going to have to do Kalm the because there was just no way. But I thought that because I was coming down with a cold, by the time Yom Kippur is over, because by the way, the old wives' tale, starve a cold, actually works. And if you have a cold going into Yom Kippur, by the end of Yom Kippur, it's gone. It's <laughs> happened to me before, but really gone. And so I figured by Ni'ila, I would be fine. It was an, a whole other day. I didn't talk any, it's Sunday. I mean, come Sunday night, Kondidre, I really didn't have anything. I was glad he was able to repair. And Yom Kippur afternoon, I had a, a challenge, I, to, you know, a question for myself. I really did not have a voice. But I was really the only one in the shul who knew the Nusach for Ni'ila. And I discussed with Mike a little bit. Ultimately, it was my decision either way. I was probably present to the shul at the time, so I really could do what I wanted. And um, I decided to do it without really a voice. A number of months later, I had a conversation with Sherwood Goffin, the chazan, the, reti- the senior chazan, retiring from Link- for 54 years at Lincoln Square Synagogue. And um, he um, and he and I and I told him the story. At the end, he goes, so "What what choice did you make?" And I said, "I chose to do it myself." He said, "Well, you made the right choice." Um, for me, um, and again, this is where we diverge. The nusach for Ni'ila, you know, whether it's the Kaddish before Ni'ila or the opening Kushman Esri or Enkas Mesal Decha or Psach Lanushar, it, it, it's, it's what we expect and, and, and it evokes a mood different. And again, we talk about what mood it's evoking. That might get me in a mood, but it's, it's a very different mood that I'm expecting to have at the crescendo of Ni'ila. And Mark, as as we shared early, early on in the conversation of, of preparing this show, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. This, to me, what Naomi did there you know, gives sets me in the mood for the end of my fast. It says, 
I've spent this day, and the musical setting just says in a contemporary way, I'm up, I'm ready. Hayom Yifnei. Okay, so I might argue that 35 minutes later, this might be the right song to sing. But before we go through, and again, the, I'm sure the, the text is different. Before we say, Before we say the Yud Gimel Midos a dozen times. Before we say, Hashem Hu Elokim and Shema Yisrael and Baruch Shem Kavod. Maybe after that point, we sing Oseh Shalom, we sing this Pesach Shalom. I get that. I think that at the time that you're singing this song, my opinion, obviously, I'm not ready for that yet. But we will agree to disagree. Right. Absolutely. And I think that, and again, my, that's my own personal take on the situation. And I think that what we really discussed today a lot was, it, it, you know, I mean, Chazen Benny has a very particular opinion and, um, and, and, and many in our community would agree. But I think that in, in, in that, that, that opinion in, in theory doesn't translate as cleanly into practice as most people who hold that theory. So, Mark, we have done the stunt show together twice now, yes. and both times we have actually had more music than we actually got to. Right. Oh, yeah, and, no question about it. And there it. was a, you know, and I, and I really, you know, we're going to go over, but hopefully nobody's going to get too angry. Um, there's one piece. You can start playing in the background, so it's, oh, it doesn't matter, because you have an end time, it doesn't matter. Okay, good. Okay. There, there's one piece, again, this is not from liturgy, this is a piece that is, in my mind, a kavana. Mm-hmm. And it's Netan L. Goldberg, who is a, a musician in residence at Lab Shoal here in, in New York. And Netan L. just the, the, so, the song is I Am Holy, but it, and it's a kavana going into the high holidays. To me, it gave a tremendous amount of meaning last year, and I wanted to share it with the community. Okay, before we go to that, I have two things I want to do before we close. That'll be our closing song. Um, the first is, um, and I mentioned again this morning on Jamie, a very, very important Yom Kippur message for me. Um, two years ago, and it's a good plug for this afternoon for Charlie Harari's show. And by the way, tune in to Matis Sunday morning, and um, he's having the chief rabbi of South Africa, Rabbi Goldstein, talking, I assume, about Shabbos. Everybody just wants Shabbos. Um, and Avrami Saturday Night Siegel, yes, after post Saturday night, post Yom Kippur Saturday Night Siegel. Oh, wow, look at that. I've run me working hard Saturday night from Baltimore. So tune into that as well, as well as our encore programming on Sunday. And, of course, Charlie Rari this afternoon. So one of the things I got from Charlie Rari, which, I mean, I promise you, it really changed my Yom Kippur two years ago and has very much changed my perspective. I don't want to say it changed my life. It's a little too strong. But changed my perspective on a lot of things. The power of forgiveness, especially as it relates to Yom Kippur. We stand there all day saying, Please, God, forgive us. But yet we're upset because the guy sitting next to us parked in, in, in my parking spot and he blocked my driveway and he cut me off on the highway. And we have to be, we have to be willing to forgive and forget, but certainly forgive our brethren on all, from all parts of the world before it's the height of hypocrisy to ask God for forgiveness if we are unwilling or unable to forgive each other, whether the person asked for it, whether the person apologized, whether it was his fault or my fault or their fault, it's not relevant. If you're going to go ask God for forgiveness, you got to be able to forgive to forgive everybody before you go and make that request from him. It's just it's hypocrisy, if you don't, in my opinion. And I think that um, it, it very much changed my work life. It very much changed how I deal with people at home and in the community. The power of forgiveness is is really it's a tremendous amount of power, and for all those people over the number of years on or off the air who I have offended, I promise you one thing: I am not worth being upset over. I promise you that. 
It's just, I am just not worth getting that upset about. <laughs> so that was my first message. The second message I wanted to read, and what I thought, I read it yesterday, and, and I think this is a lot of what we've done today on the show, and a lot, I, and I think, quite frankly, it's probably a lot more, Harold, of um, of the way you um, operate, and, and, and uh, operate is the wrong word, but you engage in Judaism versus m- maybe people closer to me. I think that this, although this is definitely, um, I've learned from David Sable, this is um, th- this is a, a behavior that I want to model. And so Rabbi Shmuel Hertzfeld, who's the rabbi of the National Synagogue, wrote a piece or wrote a book, and it was a piece that was excerpted, excerpted on Tablet Magazine that I wanted to read um, because I thought this was a powerful message um, for Yom Kippur. And, with, and then we'll go into our closing um, our, our closing piece. Um, so this is from Shmuel Hertzfeld. I once received an unusual phone call from a good friend. She told me that she was on the Council of Foreign Relations and wanted to nominate me for a prestigious fellowship. My initial reaction was, of course, nominate me. Who, what took you so long to call? Then I thought that before I accepted, I should probably ask some questions. What's involved, I asked. It's a fellowship in Japan, she told me. You will live in Japan for the next year. Then I said, what about Minion? Can I find a Minion there? What about my shul? I'm the, I love my shul. I know some of my congreg- congregants would pay my moving expenses for the rabbi to go to Japan. But, you know, in this shul we love each other. Finally, I said, what about my family? I don't think my wife will be too happy with me if I go to Japan for a year. By this time, she was laughing because because we both realized it wasn't going to happen. She jokingly told me, Rabbi, your wife was the one who asked me to call you. No, I was not going to Japan. But the truth is, a part of me had really wanted to go. At the conclusion of Yom Kippur service, we read the story of Jonah. Jo- God tells Jonah in uh, in Parak Aleph, Pusik Bays, Go to the city of Nineveh and command them to repent. Nineveh was the wicked city of that era. It was the arch enemy of the Jewish people, but it was very far away. Jonah was being commanded to travel there to instruct the inhabitants to repent. But Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Does that make sense? Jonah is a prophet, a man of God. He hears God's voice. How could he knowingly disobey God's will? Why wouldn't he listen to God? Here are two possible answers to this question. The first explanation comes from Rabbinic Midrash. According to the rabbis, Jonah was in the temple at the time that God uh, that God called to him. He was engaged in prophecy. He was meditating. He was part of the spiritual elite who had a special intimacy with God. But then God told him, come, get up, you need to go to Ninveh. Jonah doesn't want to leave the temple to go to Ninveh. After all, in the temple, he has everything he needs spiritually. He has a great relationship with God. God talks to him. Why should he leave that and run to the people of Nineveh? They were sinners. They were at the other end of the world. No wonder Jonah resisted. He wanted no part of it. But Jonah had no choice. Prophecy is not an option. It's a responsibility. When you hear the call of God, you must share the message with the people. Once you hear the message, you can no longer maintain the same relationship with God. And if you don't share his message with the people, then just like Jonah, you are running away from God. There are no prophets anymore, and we are not in the same spiritual level as Jonah. But in our own way, we all have the same responsibility. We have to get up, leave our temple, and share the teachings of God with the world. Today, Ninveh no longer means wicked sinners. It represents anyone who is distant from the synagogue. Many in the organized religious community feel the same reluctance as Jonah. We don't want to leave our temples and go out to talk to the Ninvites. 
We are happy where we are. We are happy praying. We don't want to disrupt our union with God, our spirituality, our upward spiritual path to go out and look for the people of Nineveh, but is not an option. It's a responsibility. Maimonides calls prophecy masa, a burden or a responsibility. It is our responsibility to carry the message forth to the world. It is our responsibility to leave our temples and prophecies and go to Nineveh. On a practical level, each of us is responsibility is responsible for seeking out people so that they can hear the word of God, for bringing them closer, bringing, them the, bringing the temple to Nineveh. Many people are shy about this. They just don't want to do it. I know because sometimes I ask people to share their contacts with me so I can invite their friends to shul, and they demure. This brings us to my second point. There is another reason why Jonah doesn't want to go. A friend of mine once said to me, Jonah doesn't want to go because he's afraid of the people of Nineveh will reject him. I think the opposite is true. Jonah is not afraid that they will reject him, but they will. he's afraid they will accept him. In fact, Jonah can be considered the most successful prophet in the entire Bible. His utterance, one sentence, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. One mere sentence and all of Nineveh repents. Jonah doesn't even have to reach the center of the city. He only makes it to the outskirts and the word of his message reaches the residents on its own. Compare this to the other prophets of Israel. They are rejected and attacked, whereas Jonah is accepted before he enters the city. There is a part of us that fears going out and sharing our message since it will be rejected, but an even greater part of us that fears that somehow it will be accepted. Many of us like our relationship with God just the way it is. If we preach the religion to others, they might make us uncomfortable in some way. They could be less meticulous or even more uh, conscientious than us. We don't want any part of either. We want to be with the people who are like us. Isn't that what Jonah feared? A part of us likes the fact that our faith has such a small population. Think about how minute Judaism is. It is one of the smallest religions in the world. Some of us like it that way. Ever wonder why? The Talmud explains, converts make life difficult for the rest of the Jewish people. The great commentary Tosvot explains that this is because the converts perform commandments properly and embarrass the rest of us who were born Jews and do not observe the commandments fully. This is what Jonah was afraid of. The Ninvites would hear his message and accept it. Of course, this is precisely why God told him to go. God wants us to preach the message. For when we do so, we are forced to practice what we preach. God's message is come. Get up. Go out into the world. Whether it's Japan or Washington, D.C., we must find our brethren and share his message with as many people as possible. The first words that we recite on Yom Kippur night are, we declare it legal to pray with sinners. It is a reminder of our responsibility to go out into the world with a message. We say these words as we begin Yom Kippur because we are being taught, go and gather in the synagogue and take your message to the world. Don't just stay in the synagogue and don't be afraid of others. As Yom Kippur draws closer, I always sense a change in the atmosphere. I feel that Jews who have drifted allow themselves to be attracted by the power, the awesomeness of the holiday. So every year on the eve of Yom Kippur, I make a special effort to connect with souls who have drifted from their connection to the Jewish people. The eve of Yom Kippur is the time that I especially seek out the unaffiliated, the disaffected, and the unconnected in the hope that perhaps on this Yom Kippur, they might find, they might give of our faith another chance. Some people in this town have uh, exist, uh, extensive Rolodexes. 
Mine, too, is quite substantial. It contains the names of people who do not return my calls and people who do not respond to my emails. I have emailed thousands of Jews in this city to invite them to services, and often I get no response. But one Yom Kippur Eve, it was different. In 2005, I sent an email to a man named William Cohn and his wife, Janet Langhart Cohn. I was familiar with their story from the media. As a young boy, the Orthodox rabbi of Bill's synagogue had not allowed him a bar mitzvah because his mother was Jewish. At the time, Bill elected not to convert to Judaism. Later, he went on to become a congressman, a senator, and then the Secretary of Defense. He eventually married Janet. It is an interracial marriage, and together they have written a powerful book about the different prejudices they have faced in their marriage. Now, by nature, I do not proselytize, but I reached out to Bill and Janet because our rabbis teach that even if one's mother is not Jewish, the child is still considered Zerah Yisrael, the seed of Israel, a Jewish soul, and it is a mitzvah to convert such a child. I thought about the pain they had experienced in their lives and felt that they might appreciate the uplifting spirit of our Kol Nidre service. Soon after, I sent the email. I received a call from Bill and Janet. I heard the emotion over the phone, and they said, Thank you so much for the invitation. We've been waiting for an invitation for a very long time. Early on the morning of Yom Kippur Eve, I went to their home to put up a mezuzah, and I heard just a sliver of their story. Bill told me that he attended Hebrew school for six years. He was the number one student in terms of grades, but the rabbi would never pick on him because his mother wasn't Jewish. Because the rabbi was so mean to him, Bill decided not to convert and said goodbye to Jewish life. I have a little bit of chutzpah left over from my high school days, so I told him exactly what I was thinking. The tragedy is that if they had only seen your potential, he could have had another rabbi for our people. The world got a senator, a secretary of state, but the Jewish people could have had a great rabbi. When I stood with him, I felt inspired by their, by their sincerity. I also felt the loss of what could have been had we not turned away from such a talented person. The point is that we never know what person who walks into our lives can end up becoming. If we look at everyone as a child of God, blessed with unlimited potential, we will end up turning no one away. When you go looking for Nineveh, you never know what you might find, and you never know what you might learn. Those of us who attend Shul and Yom Kippur are already connected with our faith. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be attending services. But once we are in Shul, reading the service of Jonah, we are being taught that we should not just spend our lives in a synagogue or in the cloistered confines of our community. The book of Jonah is trying to teach us to go out to the ninveys of the world and share our souls. This is Mark Zamek. I appreciate everybody listening and indulging me, and um, I enjoyed uh, this show. I learned a great deal, and I hope that our listeners understand the point of... Um, and, 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 and in all honesty, I might not say Elu, Elu, Devriel, Kim Chaim in this case, but I will say that um, the overarching importance of connecting um, both in, within our community and within our tefillah and then taking what we can do and what we are and what we have learned and we, what we are as a people out to the rest of the world, I think, is a message that we can all, that at least you and I, Mr. Geller, can certainly agree on on this era of Yom Kippur. Um, I thank you for joining us. I thank our guests, Josh Nelson, um, Zalman Mulatik, and Chazan Benny Regesnitsky. I thank Avrami for indulging us on this extra 44 minutes of the stunt show and the 60 minutes before that. And I thank all our listeners. Please tune in tonight to Charlie Harari. Um, coming up next is Throwback Thursday, which is from... Oh, the 20th anniversary, Erev Rosh Hashanah from uh, 12, 13 years. That was a great show. That was the first time Nachum's mother was on the air. So uh, everybody should pay attention and, and, and keep tuned to the stream. This show will be available for archive at the 
very least by Sunday morning, if we give up our meal an extra time, we should get your Wi-Fi on the bus. Anyway, this is Mark Zamek reminding you that no matter how long a journey may seem, every step re- take you, every step you take brings you one closer to the end. Have a Gemar Tov, a Chag Sameach, and we go out with... Netanel Goldberg. Oh. Like a river Flow With the ocean Fly On the wind That blows Through the winter Dream About
open to see flowers blooming. I am here to live this life.